Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan, and this is the 21st step on this interstellar musical expedition. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome to the podcast. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being fans. On this episode, once again, we're having a world premiere of a song from the album Autumn. We'll be listening to and analyzing the track The Culling with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. On this episode, we're also going to go back to the 1998 Smashing Pumpkins album Adore and talk about the track Shame. Now, we have a lot to talk about today, including Billy performing at Lisa Marie Presley's funeral, thoughts on death and rebirth, And who really gets credit for the Smashing Pumpkins? So once again, we're going without a guest. Kyle Davis, I have to remind people, if everyone's listening to this as it drops on Tuesday, that means tonight we're having our first ever live NWA Power professional wrestling show from the Knoxville Convention Center. Tickets available at nwatix.com. You can also watch the show for free anywhere in the world on the NWA YouTube channel. You can watch it live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is going to be rocking tonight. And this drops at around midnight, so if you wake up early and you're in the Knoxville area and you want to be a part of it, you could still get there in time. If you are listening to this at a different time, pretend and just watch it online, please. But also, make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it, be it iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app, wherever you get your podcasts. want to make sure you are a part of that narrative. WPC33.com is the place to go to to continue the conversation, playlists, lyrics, and more about all things Smashing Pumpkins. Also... I don't know if you know this yet. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but March 4th, Mexico City World is a Vampire Festival. You got to be a part of that. Joe called me this morning, said something in Spanish. I'm lost. I still got time. I'm going to learn this. 
But basically, guys, you are here for one thing. Enough about the plugs. My boss, the man, the B to the C, WPC, William Patrick Corrigan. What you got for us today, buddy? I got nothing. Fantastic. <laughs> guys, right. for 33, be it, this everybody. Been- <laughs> Thank you very much. That's it. I'm out of words. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited because I love this part of the story, and I want to jump right in because we all have a lot to talk about today, and we like to not take up too much of your time. We appreciate you being here. The culling. Last we saw Osira and Nighthawk and Ruby, they were at Dr. Aish's house. Dr. Aish had betrayed them and had ostensibly turned them over to the X and I. And of course, Nighthawk, being churlish and young, decides to turn himself in because he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison. And unfortunately, he is, as seen by other people on secret cameras, he is assassinated on the spot. So now we have a situation going into the song The Culling where Dr. Aish realizes the error in his ways. He shouldn't have turned the kids over. How could he trust the man in quotations? Quotation? Osiris freaking out. She doesn't want to die. And she's a person on a mission. And of course, we have the cold calculus of Ruby, who's the mixture of Ruby, the Corrine robot from the 1970s based on a 1930s film character mixed with the pure consciousness of Shiny, who is now slowly hurtling back towards Earth for reasons yet unknown. So that's exactly where we are in the story. And I love this particular moment because we apply what we call in uh, thematics, Deus Ex Machina. Deus Ex Machina is a theatrical device where the hand of God basically breaks reality, reaches in and saves the main character from certain death, or in this case, the main characters. So in this particular form of the story, Dr. H realizes the error of his ways and he decides in a moment of true fidelity to his true integrity, which he had stood for his whole life, and in a moment of weakness had turned over the kids and the robot to the X and I, he decides to give them the one thing that he had prepared for himself if he ever faced a similar situation, being a doomsday prepper type. So without words, he opens a closet, he reaches in, and he grabs an old school, and you might have seen this on the Super Bowl back in the day, the old school jetpack, and he hands it to Osira, who looks at it and says, you know, basically, what the heck is this? And Dr. H hits a little panel on the floor, and the roof opens up, and above them is now the blue sky. And Ruby, uh, understanding what is happening, do 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 do, the computer brain goes off, snatches the jetpack, puts it over Osira's shoulders, wraps her arms around Osira, hits the jetpack, and off they go, zooming into space. And now Dr. H has sacrificed himself because certainly he will be killed by the X and I. So. Great nobility to Dr. H in the, in the last moment of his life as he goes out on his shield as a hero. The quick ascension, because of course Ruby hit it to get out for maximum speed, because knowing that they would probably be shot at, causes Osira to pass out from the, you know, the loss of uh, blood and oxygen to the brain. So this is Ruby now communicating to Osira Ruby's feelings about where they are in this particular form of narrative. The title of the song, The Culling. Now, The Culling, by definition, is a reduction of a wild animal population by selective slaughter. So I could look at this as, as a couple of different ways. Obviously, our, our heroine, our everybody in the story here, is the thing that needs to be slaughtered for society's purposes. But I look at it this way. Is this a happy society at the end of the day? Obviously, we know from the inside looking in that there is a, a certain amount of subjugation and trying to keep the populace down and just don't think too hard. Everything's perfect. Life's not bad. Keep on going. But if the society of the the world you've built in this, if everything's not really that bad, then theoretically, 
you could look at it from the way as if these characters that we have, they're trying to change the status quo are the sickness that could ruin the society and that they deemed they need to be, you know, slaughtered for the sake of the rest of it and called. I like that there could be a double narrative there. Well, there is. That's what creates the tension. So let me posit for you a binary choice, Kyle Davis. Mm. You live in a world where at any time somebody can break through your door, pull out a legal handgun and kill you. Or you can live in a world where there are no guns, there is no crime, everybody is tracked. So if they do create crime, uh, they're easily traced. So you have no fear in the sense that you figure out no one's probably going to do that. And if they do, well, they're certainly going to be caught. So why would they do it? Which world would you choose to live in? I mean, the world I live in is somebody could come in my door, shoot me, but they will be tracked. So it's a weird merging of it all. I mean, no, humans people get away weird. with murder all the time. I know, I know Chicago police detectives who one guy I know has to cover a 40 square mile area of, of murders. So any murders that happen in his district or whatever, he has to cover. And he's like, how do I cover 40 square miles of murders? A lot of murders do not go solved. Of course, they keep that quiet because, you know what I mean? Like, they don't want people to know that most murders are not getting solved. When you see 22 shootings in Chicago over a weekend, you tell me all those people are going to jail and getting caught? No way. So I'm, I'm asking, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm positing a question like, we're at uh, WizardCon and we're up in front of a panel and there's you're in front of a crowd. There, this is the, the right. digital crowd is listening, Kyle. So you right now you make the choice. Do you want to live in the society where you you risk death in exchange for freedom of movement and thought and speech, or do you want to live in a safe world where somebody unknown to you can control your ability oh, as to what you say, where you work, what you do, how you spend your money, et cetera, et cetera. Choose I'm going right now. Safe world. Okay. Safe world. Because the truth is, we kind of already live in a world where we don't have complete say over everything. And I accept that. I have my cell phone. I love it. I could Google or look at something I so should So you're be the guy who, who signs the terms and conditions without reading them. That's you, right? I definitely am. And I realize that I work for a living because there are bills over my head and things. I love being a part of this and I love being a part of it with you. But there are restrictions in my life and society that I have to abide by for the comfortableness so of being you accept able to do this a damn thing that I want. Okay. So I'm just. I'm asking you questions because I, I think you're, I think you're, no, but no, I think your answer is totally great. I think it's fantastic because I think your answer represents what a lot of people would think. Okay. Yeah. Are you comfortable knowing that this podcast probably wouldn't exist in that society? Yes, I am very comfortable with it. I also realize that I can say a bunch of things that in that society, I wouldn't be able to, I could criticize, I could question, I could do all this. Yes. I give up a certain amount of freedom for that. But at the end of the day, if you live in something for so long, I think you kind of forget that at times. And the naivety of it. I mean, would I be stupid for saying like, oh, I would love to have freedom. I would love to be able to do whatever I want without restriction, this, that, even if it makes me a danger and I could be hunted down, at least I know I'm living the life I want. I hope I never have to think like that because frankly, I think I have the best of both worlds and the best compromises of everything at this current point. In but I think it's pretty obvious we're hurtling towards one world or the, or the other. And let me say one more thing. Let's assume that we end up where you're talking about, because obviously I'm on the, on the other side of the street with most of the things I say here. We end up in the other world, safety world, right? And you're like, everything's cool. Like, this is great. I mean, I understood what Billy was talking about, you know, 10 years ago. But man, look, you know, I, I don't have to worry. And as long as I pay my taxes and blah, 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 we're all good, blah, blah, blah. And then one day they announce, hey, anybody with uh, Scottish heritage, you need to come down here and you need to, uh, you need to uh, register. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm, my name's Davis. I could be Scottish. I'm not quite sure. I might be Irish. Uh, Oh, they, somebody calls somebody, da-da-da, or you, you talk to AI. 
Yeah, you got to come down, Mr. Davis. So you got to register. Why do I have to register? Uh, it's just uh, it's something we're working on. Uh, it's legally required. You have no choice. Uh, if you don't, your phone will be shut off, your electricity will be shut off, and you won't be able to use your banking, which is now all digital currency. So, Mr. Davis, you're going to have to come down or you're going to be canceled in, in this new culture. Okay, well, let me finish. You go down and register, and, uh, and you, you, some guy recognizes you from wrestling. You pull him aside. You go, oh, do you know what they're doing here? Guy works behind the desk. He pulls you aside and he whispers and goes, I hate to tell you this, but uh, they've done a lot of studies and they find out that Scots are more likely to commit violence. So um, uh, now the Scottish people are going to be more, uh, you know, they're going to be under greater restriction because we've seen a rise in crime related to people of Scottish descent. Okay, that's that's the problem with all those systems is is when they flip the other way and every time they've ever existed in the last 150 years— Every regime that ever existed with that as the goal has flipped the other way. Why? Human nature, duh, but that's just my opinion. So that's the problem with your theory, but it doesn't mean your theory won't work. We just wouldn't know until we get there, and if we decided we didn't like it, we'd have no choice back. And that's why you always got to stand up for people that aren't you, because at some point, one day, you might be considered the problem. Well, you're the problem now, so no, just kidding. (laughs) I love you. No, I mean, like, I can't help but that I'm Scottish and I have red in my beard. Come on, man. All red beard guys are dangerous. Well, we already know this. We've seen the studies and we've seen the reality shows. It's usually the red bearded guy that goes off on alcohol in the reality show. Joe, do we have to get out of this segment and get to more serious I think subjects? We, I think we do. I, I think we got to get to this track, baby, because uh, when we come back after this Wait, break, let me say one more thing. Listening. Well, well more hold thing. on. Because it's important to the narrative and that's why we're here. Osira passes out and Ruby's cradling Osira in her arms. So Osira's passed out through the whole ascension and the descent. And so there's this beautiful kind of, as you hear in the middle of the song, it gets very instrumental. So this is allegorical in terms of visual sense of the flight of these two having this kind of connection, this sort of idealized relationship between a robot, however sentient with, what's his name, Chinese consciousness, and and then this, this young person who really does want to change the world. So Musically, you'll hear some allegorical, emotional stuff there as they descend back to Earth. This is 10 songs in, so we have just one little bit of more piece of music, and we'll be at the end of Act 2. So that'll be next week, and we'll get to Act 2. But when we come back, the world premiere in Kyle's safe world where nothing bad can ever happen, where even the Redbeards are respected and loved and are not made fun of by shows like South Park, The Culling by The Smashing Pumpkins, when we come back. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by the Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA. Three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Friends, welcome back to The 33 Podcast. William Patrick Cargan here with my co-hosts Kyle Davis and Joe Galilee. Galilee. Uh, Joe of Galilee. I like that. That's your new name, Joe. Um, the Culling. Close your eyes for a moment if you can. If you're driving, please don't. And imagine Ruby the robot and Osira off into space with the jetpack, Osira passing out from the quick ascension, the sun shining behind them, the same sun that Shiny is fleeing from. Oh my God. My problems with alliteration are well documented on this podcast. Anyway, enjoy the culling. With
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to The Culling, another hit song off the album Autumn. And Billy, since the last time we talked to you, uh, you attended uh, Lisa Marie Presley's funeral. You performed there. Uh, I watched the clips that they uploaded to YouTube. It wasn't just you. It was really a kind of a star-studded event. A lot of people uh, celebrating the life of an incredible woman. But uh, but where are you out after, after that um, nice performance that you did there in, at Graceland? Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, full disclosure, I knew that I was going to the funeral and probably performing when we did our last podcast taping, but I didn't feel at liberty to talk about it because the family asked that everybody sign an NDA. And I thought they did a great job of keeping the whole event quiet, which the good part of that was the focus was on Lisa uh, leading into the funeral. And then, of course, at the funeral, people saw that not only was I there, but um, uh, Axel Rose, as well as Alanis Morissette, and there were other dignitaries in the house. And I'll let, uh, if you want to look at People Magazine or whatever to see who else was there, I'll, I'll try to respect the NDA, NDA as much as I can here. I think, obviously, with a funeral of this level, the family's safety and the family's privacy is paramount. So I feel at liberty to talk about the event in the way that it's sort of public. When uh, when Lisa passed away, and of course, amongst her closest friends, we are all in total shock. You know, now you're dealing with, of course, the family. And of course, as I said before, I know the family, but I didn't assume, given the nature of her sudden death, that uh, I would be welcome. So it wasn't like I sent out emails, hey, like, am I invited? I just assumed that I wasn't going to be part of the service, which was fine. And I would have respected that because, as I like to say, funerals are for families, not necessarily the deceased. That's just my own personal opinion. And very kindly, I got an email a few days later saying, you know, the family wants you to be involved in this. And so I was sort of shocked, but really pleasantly touched because I really did want to be there, but I couldn't kind of let myself have that feeling until I got the invitation. And then about a day later, I got an additional invite, which is, we'd like you to perform if you're open to that. And then it made it really heavy for me because then you start thinking, my goodness, what song am I going to play? You know, what song do you play at your friend's funeral? I don't necessarily write songs for those events, and maybe I should, so I have one in my pocket. I got songs pretty much for everything else. So I thought long and hard about what I would perform, and I decided to play Tashila because I, I'd written that song sort of in the neighborhood of the time that I first met Lisa, and we got to know each other. In fact, uh, her former boyfriend came up and reminded me of the first time that we had met. It was at a party in L.A., sort of a gathering type of thing, and he said that Lisa and he were in the corner and they spotted me. And so they conspired to come over and talk to me. And that began a, a friendship which uh, lasted. And not a lot of friendships last. And we can talk about that too uh, in a further part of this particular segment. Yeah, it was very intense. There was a private part to the um, the ceremony of her funeral and there was a public part. So working backwards, the public part was broadcast. If anybody's seen it, it was quite lovely. Um, they had choir. They had uh, the Blackwood Brothers, this legendary quartet now probably in the second or third generation of the quartet going back to the 1950s. I actually have tons of their recordings, so I was shocked that they were there, but then I remember their relationship to Elvis and the gentleman who was the son of the lead singer of the Blackwood Brothers. If you know anything about gospel, there's sort of one guy who's kind of like the lead guy that with the super high voice. Anyway, and I literally have Blackwood Brothers uh, 45s in my jukebox, so I'm, I am a fan. And so there, there they are singing, and they sang one song beautifully, and then the gentleman said, my family sang for Elvis when his mother passed here at Graceland. And then when Elvis died, uh, we sang at Elvis's funeral. And now here I am singing at Lisa's. And he started weeping. And he must have broke down for, I mean, five minutes. I watched him because, you know, you grief is something interesting to witness. And I'm not trying to be voyeuristic here because as I'm going 
through my own grief, I'm watching other people. And there's that's what's something so powerful about a funeral is it gives people permission to feel those really, really deep, intense feelings. And watching his family's connection to the Presley family really touched me because I think that is the enduring legacy of the Presley family is the celebration and coming together of music. That's what I think of when I think of Elvis the musician. And when you saw the deep reverent respect that he has for the Presleys and that family's relationship to Elvis, it was very humbling to me because, um, you know, of course, when I met Lisa, you know, like I told her, as I said on the on the previous podcast, you know, I knew her my whole life, even though I didn't know her. But when I got to know her, of course, it's Elvis's daughter, duh. So my relationship to the Presleys was through Lisa and everything I knew about the Presleys. So my relationship to the Presleys is sort of interesting. It's very outward in the sense that like, like everyone else, I grew up with Elvis on television. And then it was very intimate because of my relationship to Lisa. So when you see these other connective tissues, it's very humbling because you realize that you're connected to this much, much deeper and bigger tradition. And they built this beautiful museum across the street from Graceland. I'd never been to Graceland, so this is the first time I got to go. And I, I had to remember why I hadn't been to Graceland. And if I'm repeating a story, I'm sorry, but because I've said it a few times in the past few days. I actually called Lisa when I was in Memphis once, and I said, I'd like to go to Graceland. She said, great, I'll hook you up, you know. I, you, you got the VVIP version of it all, as she would say. And then I changed my mind during the phone call. And she said, like, what? You don't want to go? Like, I, I got the, you got the hookup. Like, come on, I'll let you go places no one goes, all that stuff, you know. The awesome part of it all. And I said, no, I want to go with you. And so the sad, weird part was that she eventually got me to Graceland with her funeral. But they have this incredible complex across the street, 290,000 square feet. All of Elvis's cars and all his costumes, unbelievable, really beautifully done. Anyway, and then the private part, which I'm going to kind of keep a little bit in the shadows because of respecting the NWA. NWA. <laughs> I can't help but being a wrestling promoter. The NDA was, was an assembly of very close friends and family, very intimate. And some people spoke. And the beautiful part about that, and this is the one thing I would share, is I had a very unique and special relationship with Lisa. But like you do when you have relationships with certain people, especially when they die too soon, you find yourself almost questioning, like, is the relationship I thought I had the relationship I had? Did I kind of imagine that? Did I puff it up? And was the case with Lisa, and it certainly has been the case in my life, uh, and I'm getting to that in a second, people have a way of puffing up their relationship with me in a way that has more to do with my celebrity and the name, you know, the band or whatever, than it does to do with a real relationship with the real person called William Patrick Corgan. So, of course, I found myself at times wondering, like, does this relationship I had with Lisa, was that sort of in my mind? And did I puff it up because of who she was, you know? I think that's a very a reasonable question to ask yourself when you're grieving somebody, like, what are you letting go of? Are you letting go of something that you created? Or are you letting go of something that was truly real and if it's based in love would be enduring and a bunch of people got up and spoke and everybody literally spoke about Lisa the way that I saw Lisa and so I was really humbled by that because a it told me that the relationship that I thought I had was the relationship I had and that really means a lot to me because this death has really messed up my head and then secondarily to know that the special person she was 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 shared with others, that it wasn't just a very, very small circle of friends and intimates, that that those who came in contact with her, whether they were employees of Graceland or very, very famous people, more famous than, than her, and that they all had the same experience with her. 
And so that really, really lends weight to the world, uh, the words that I shared on here about the kind of person that she was. Does that mean that during the course of the funeral, while you're going through your grieving process, is there this sense of relief that you felt in knowing that the relationship you had with Lisa Marie Presley was as genuine as you thought it was? It kind of cut both ways. I think in the positive, you know, it's like, wow, that really was and is a beautiful thing. And then where it cuts the other way is like, wow, I've lost somebody that is irreplaceable. Everybody's irreplaceable, especially if you love them. And if you love somebody, you know, they don't have to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. If you love them, you love them. And I hope people feel about that way about me when I go. But when it's somebody who's really unique and has a certain shine to them, and it's really hard to quantify, yeah, you go, wow, that's not going to, you're not going to see that again. Just take slight detour real quick, because I think this is the most salient thing that was said. And I believe it was talked about by the preacher in the public part of the service. And then other people intimated it in their remarks. Lisa came into life with a very, very particular burden. And as I said, the positive side of that is like, hey, you know, you don't want for, for cookies and stuff. Like, you know, she wasn't born into poverty like her father was. But she took on a responsibility of carrying forth her father's legacy. And she did it with such grace and dignity that you're hard-pressed to look back and say, wow, that person kind of dropped the ball on that thing. And if you can respect it from the perspective I'm offering, which is like, that's a heavy thing to come in, like, hey, your dad's Elvis, and you've got to carry this thing forward. Find out who you are, make your own life, and sort of work within the, the space of that. She did it with absolute dignity, and I thought the way other people express it, I'm doing a poor job of it here, that really touched me because now that she's gone, you realize like that's a heavy burden to bear. And knowing her intimately and seeing how she felt about it and what it did to her in different ways, including probably stunted the opportunity of at different times of having her own musical career. Um, not everybody would have reacted the same. Of course, she was sensitive and took it a particular way, but the net result was you have to sit back and say, wow, she did it with a lot of grace, and I think that's probably the greatest public uh, acclaim that I could give her. Is like when you look and you see what she inherited and what she leaves now to her her children. I think you can you can you definitely sort of tip your cap and say job well done on that because that is not an easy gig. Listening to you talk about this, do you get some? sort of introspection to see if this person was born a celebrity, this person dealt with it on a constant trying to live past a legacy. I know that as somebody in the public eye, you obviously at times probably have to think about like, how do I fit into the overall grand scheme of things being someone that's not just a, a normal human being as it is, but looking at somebody who was so beyond that, does that kind of give you a, an introspection and kind of a more self-awareness of like, wow, it could be so much harder than it is for me personally? I tend to more think about it in terms of my, um, my children. Obviously, totally different level of legacy here, but my children will inherit my songs, or at the very least, if I ever decided to sell my legacy, like who I was. And the way Lisa so fiercely protected her father's legacy was humbling to see in person, like one-on-one. -on -one. It was humbling, and they talked about that at the public part of the funeral, so other people recognized that as well. It wasn't some sort of weird, my father's a god, don't she was more than willing to talk about Elvis, the human being, Elvis, her father. And that's what adds even more weight to it, was she saw her father 
for the complicated person that he was, but also recognized that there was a rare thing here that she needed to protect. And in that way, it created a sort of protection around her. And I think those that loved her wanted to protect her similarly. I hope many people feel that way about me. I've had, you know, in my life, a ton of public betrayal, much well-documented. And there's even some recent stuff going on, both in wrestling and in, in, on, in the rock and roll side. What's interesting to me about that is uh, Lisa, in her case, was able to avoid a lot of that. Her father was betrayed by many people after he passed away. In my case, and now pivoting it to myself, being this is the, our podcast here, I think the, the themes of death and transformation all kind of go together. I met with an intuitive yesterday who I'd worked with before. We did talk about Lisa and part of that, and that was interesting. Talked about my father who's passed away now for a year, if you haven't heard the prior broadcast. And she said something, and I'm probably misapplying the quote, but it was something along the lines of like, um, death is an opportunity for a change of form or something like that. I think the hard part with death slash change is, you know, there's that sort of feeling in us that we want the rainbow to go forever. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want the day at Disneyland end kind of thing. And so it's very painful when people exit your life whether it's through death or through just change, like stuff happens. I think um, on a spiritual end, the most important thing is to celebrate that each individual person needs to figure out for themselves um, what their destiny and what their path is. I think where I draw the line always is when people feel they need to use you as the rocket fuel to kind of get some energy going in their direction. And in the case of myself and the Smashing Pumpkins and by extension Zwan, I've often made the mistake of giving people opportunities that maybe they didn't earn. And I've been chastised by people close to me saying, you know, you shouldn't be giving this person that opportunity. They don't deserve it. Or as I've often heard, you see the best in people. Uh, and I've always sort of spiritually kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, what's so wrong with seeing the best in people? But I think the dangerous part of that is allowing people into your orbit who don't uh, deserve to be in your orbit. And I think that's the difficult part. I think that what's going on with me at this point point in my life is there's a lot of transformative energy. The best part, of course, is that the Smashing Pumpkins has gone through that death and rebirth processes and is now very stable. And uh, we're starting to see the, the spoils from that being together, you know, and being a top flight touring act and having more momentum around us as a recording act in easily 20 years. So those are all positives, but we had to go through the valley of the death of this whole thing. Uh, in other parts of my life, you still continue to see this kind of public betrayal stuff where suddenly somebody feels like not only do they need to break away, but they kind of need to light stuff on fire on the way out the door. You know, that's a story that's um, not easily told because in essence, if you get into it, you got to get into the gossip side of it, of pointing fingers and saying, well, they said this and I said this. All I would say to all that in terms of uh, my own death and transformation, because it, and the reason I'm getting into the personal side of this is it does apply to why we're here on the podcast talking about art and creation. And in this particular cycle of my life, and as we talk about the songs here, we are talking about death and betrayal. And even in the last song, not the calling, but the song before, Dr. Aish betrays uh, Osiris and Nighthawk. Life is short, and you have to be very careful in who you assign responsibility to for your own journey. I'm very comfortable at this point in my life in being very transparent about the mistakes that I've made um, where I've overly taken credit or tried to hold on to things that didn't need to be held on to. But in the reverse, you see these scenarios where because of the industry of Smashing Pumpkin slash Billy Corgan and how it extends even into the NWA, that creates a sort of a weird rocket fuel where 
at different times, different personalities feel the need to kind of weaponize internal stuff into the public sphere because in this materialistic world, they're sort of rewarded. But the funny part is, is that they are ultimately reacting against the institutions that I've built. And if I'm not out here thumping my chest about the institutions I've built, why are they out there thumping their chest in the reverse, saying they had more to do with it or they had more say in what happened? In essence, what I'm trying to say, and I think it's the way to kind of cleave this segment to a close, and of course, if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. But when you're dealing in death and rebirth, it's a very, very painful process to go through. I just went through a very, very painful thing in burying my friend. And that would be painful with or without the public part of this equation. And it's interesting that even in the, in the thrall of that morning, I'm dealing with the personal situation as somebody who used to be part of the pumpkin's kingdom and is out there thumping their chest about credit and stuff like that. Stuff that has no uh, need in the public forum. The thing that I've built with the Smashing Pumpkins is like my, like I said, my Willy Wonka machine. This machine of the pumpkins or Billy Corgan at all will endure past my mortality. And it's interesting that there are people who feel like they need to break pieces off of that and claim ownership. When I'm on here every week telling you that I don't own it as much as you might think that I own it, that I'm in process with something in my estimation, far higher in me and higher than me. And that has more to do with the cycles of life, death, rebirth, and creativity. I didn't invent the chords. I didn't invent the words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm a humble servant to a much higher God. And when people, whether they believe it or not, want to turn me into a God or an anti-God or a Christ or an anti-Christ, they're making the same mistake that I long ago figured out was a mistake. To personalize your own cycles of birth and death and creative rebirth, you're making the mistake. It's not about me. It's not about Jesus. It's not about the guy at the magazine. It's ultimately about your own journey and what you really believe and celebrate. And so I can sit here very comfortably and look at my friend Lisa and say, after 54 years, there was somebody who did it with great dignity, had a very complicated path. And the end result was they didn't take a bunch of people to the grave with them because they were willing to take on their own yoke. In spiritual terms, I'm out here publicly, literally every week, willing to take on my own yoke. And I'm very comfortable with whether or not this process of being public about the art and then the private part about creation in this form, autumn, you know, which, you know, as I've said repeatedly, I was told over and over again over a period of three to four years, bad idea. This is the most momentum the band's had on so many different levels. After I get off this uh, taping, I'm, I have to do a major interview with uh, someone who I grew up reading you know, their, their magazine. I, I, how do you judge your value, right? I guess I'm, I'm after something that's really hard to define, and if you stayed with me, I appreciate that. How do you define value? Is the value the thing you create? Okay, is, is my value this week the song The Culling? Or the song we're going to play after we get out of this and coming off the next break, which is Shame off of a door. Is that my value? Is my value that I played to Sheila at Lisa's funeral? I saw people criticizing online Axel's performance at the funeral. First of all, who criticizes someone's performance at a funeral? That's disgusting. That's disgusting. Second of all, I was there. I was 15 feet away. The man poured his whole heart into that performance. 
I've never met Axel before I met him at the funeral. I wish I had because I'm a fan from 89 on. I think he's one of the greats of all time. We live in this crazy world where you got everybody running around waving flags. And the easiest thing to do is to point at somebody who actually has something to point at and say, oh, by the way, did you know? Why don't you go out and create something worthy of that level of criticism yourself and get off the other thing, which is like somehow somebody else is keeping you from your dream. No one's ever kept me from any dream. That's obvious. And where I've said it, they were responsible. That was a mistake. I do want to ask you about this because when it comes to like, what is your value? I feel like a lot of people are confronted with that. And if you just look into the capitalist landscape that we're in, value is different for every single person. For some people, the value of uh, spending $2,000 on a, on a particular, you know, let's call it a laptop or something, that might be valuable to that person. And that's the right value that you think you would get for that. Whereas for someone else, it's completely not worth that. And to find that in yourself is so much more difficult. And I think what also to tie it back to what we were talking about, sort of the, the, the parable of the phoenix rising from the ashes and then the ability to do that and then to come out of that and become the, the stronger, brighter force after going through that adversity and then creating something, whether it's art or whether it's even family or something like that. That's where you really get to know the value of yourself is overcoming that adversity overcoming the grief, overcoming all of that, that darkness that's there and to bring it into a new life and to new light. And that's why it's so ingrained into almost every culture. If you go back through history, whether you're talking, you know, Mesoamericans and all this, there is that constant story of rebirth and coming out of darkness and then into the light and then onto something else that's better or brighter or higher or something like that. And I think that all ties in with the art that you make or the art that anybody makes in their life is you're representing your rise over that challenge and that death, perhaps. You're singing at a funeral and there are people weeping. What is the acceptable level of performance? I'm a performer. I've played thousands of concerts. I played with people who loved my friend weeping in front of me. Was it about hitting every note? Was it about remembering all the words? Or was it that you're there? And that's the point I'm trying to make. You got to be there to be there. You got to be in it to make stuff happen. As I like to point out in sort of a defiant way, when I started this endeavor called the Smashing Pumpkins and wrote the name Smashing Pumpkins on a cassette, when there was no band, I'd never met James E. Ha or Jimmy Chamberlain or Darcy Retsky. I had to believe in myself. That's not to say no one's helped along the way. Um, we just worked recently with Kevin Kerslake, who did a video for Empires that hasn't come out yet. We worked with Kevin on Cherbrock in 1993. Who gets credit for Cherbrock? Kevin? Me? Who gets credit for Empires? Kevin? Me? Does it matter? We're together. We have an opportunity. And uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to beat at here is... There's something sobering about when you confront death, like, between the eyes. Like, there is my friend who I love, you know? And they're putting her in a crypt next to her beloved son, who I also knew. There's no other variant on that. <laughs> there's no, like, well, there's this other thing. Yes, if you believe spiritually that there's life after death, okay, you can take comfort in that. I was able to communicate yesterday 
vis-a-vis the psychic some things that, that were on my heart, and the psychic gave me some information back that made me feel better. Does it mean it's true? Can't tell you. Is the world that we live in true? Is the bag that you bought or the computer you bought, is that true? Is what they say about you when you die, is that true? Is what they remember true? The only thing that endures in this world is love. And if you're creating non-love, which I've created plenty of non-love, don't get it twisted. I'm no saint here. Watch ancient archaeology with Grandma Hancock, right? Ancient civilizations that are under the sea or eroded. If you think your posterity will endure because of something, something, and this other thing, and if you look at this thing in the light, you'll, re- you'll see my signature under the peacock instead of you know, the person whose name you think is, you know, like, what is that? I can sit here and say that I've written 99% of the Smashing Pumpkins music. So if you think of Smashing Pumpkins and you hear that music and you like it, I did that. If you don't like it, well, I did that. Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? If I sell the songs one day, like I alluded to before, does that mean they're not my songs anymore or they are my songs? Like, you know, it's like the famous Alan Iverson bit, like we're talking about practice, right? Like, life is not practice. Life is discipline. Life is every day getting up off of Kyle's couch and hitting it hard at the gym or whatever. Be swole like Kyle. What I'm trying to say in so many words is, as I go through my own process of birth, death, rebirth for the seventh or eighth or 19th time, every time I go through that process, I don't become more egoey, me, 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 hey, hey, look at what I've done. I become less like, oh my God, what an incredible opportunity I've had. My father used to say any day above ground's a good day. And he got to 74 or so, right? I'm just encouraging everyone, if you believe in me at all, or can hear what I'm saying, meaning like in your heart, hear what I'm saying. It's about you. (laughs) Ain't about anybody else. Doesn't mean you don't find allies. And Lisa was an ally to me and I was an ally to Lisa. And I'm honored to have been part of that process uh, at the end of her life. Wasn't there in the beginning, was there in the middle, and it was there at the end. And uh, I hope to be part of helping whatever her mission was going forward. Does that what matters? Does it matter that Elvis had three takes of a song and the second take he sang out of tune? Like, what matters here? And if you go, and I, will, I would encourage everybody, if you connect with this part of the story, and they'll get out. I see Joe's uh, newscaster eyes kicking in. Go stand at the Graceland Museum across the street from Elvis's house. The house is illuminative in its own way. And it's, you know, it's a national treasure. It's Elvis's house. I mean, hey, it's cool. Go stand across the street and stand in front of the 80 costumes and the jewelry and the movie posters and the guitars and the pictures. And and remind yourself that in 20 years, this man streaked like a comet from 1956 to about 1976 or 77 when he passed away. And we're still talking about him. They just made a major motion picture which got nominated for eight Oscars. Why are we still talking about Elvis? Is it the stuff that people talk junk about after he passed away? Was it, you know, skinny Elvis, fat Elvis? No, because there's only one Elvis. (laughs) And my point is not to say, well, there's only one Billy Corrigan, although there is only one Billy Corrigan. All my dad used to say, no, there's two, and you came second. Uh, My dad used to get very offended when people say, you look like him, and he'd say, no, he looks like me. There's only one Billy Corrigan that you know, right? But there's only one you that you know. 
I'm just saying in my own weird, funky, Piscean way, celebrate what you bring to the table and don't let anybody take anything from you. It's not about credit. Credit is absolutely worthless. People come up to me and they say, oh, you know, you're the Smashing Pumpkins. We know that. And I I say, no, I'm not. I mean, I did a lot of the work and I'm still doing a lot of the work. But that band and that music never would have happened without the other three. I'm totally cool with that. So I can say the same thing in the same sense. Yes, I did most of the work and that never would have happened without them. That's improper English, but you understand the gist of what I'm saying. The Smashing Pumpkins will always be the four OG pumpkins. We created that particular Willy Wonka machine and it lasted. All credit. So I don't have to run around thump my chest and tell you every five seconds, hey, by the way, I'm the guy who really wrote blank. (laughs) Who cares? Do you like the song? When you don't like a song, do you you have me in your going, you know, I wrote that one too. That's why I used to tell fans when they come up and complain about my music. I go, which song do you like? Oh, I like, you know, today. Okay, well, I wrote that one. Yeah, but I don't like these new songs. Well, the same guy wrote the one you like and the one you don't like. Do I win or do I lose? Anyway, when we come back, (laughs) death, rebirth, shame from a door. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to Shame from the 1998 album Adore. Billy, I have to say, this is one of those songs where I definitely feel like you were in a, a dark and sad place when you wrote the song. Actually not. <laughs> really? I'm surprised. No. No, I wasn't in a dark place. I was in a very contemplative place. As the story goes, I woke up that morning and wrote the song in about 20 minutes and went into the studio that day. And what you hear is the actual recording of what we did that day. And it was probably one of the last true recordings of the original band. And when I say the original band, I mean James Darcy and I, when we used to play with the drum machine. So we recorded with the drum machine. We sat in a little semicircle, like we did back in the day in the bedroom, is a way of saying goodbye to, um, I think, that, that version of the band. Because that, that version of the band didn't endure much longer past that album and that tour. So speaking of uh, death, that was a foreshadowing of a particular death. But yeah, this song is, um, it's one of those songs that came very quickly, but came out of a very deep period of time of trying to contemplate how to respond to my mother's death in song. As I've said many times, following up an album as big as Melancholy with an album about death uh, probably wasn't the best marketing idea, but that's what I did. Of course, the album has gone on to be its own form of classic at this point. But this song in particular, if you'd asked me that day I recorded it, I wouldn't have imagined that the song would have endured. In fact, at the moment that I did it, I thought it was a bit of an indulgence because I'm I'm sort of attracted to the idea of, I just wrote this song and I'm recording it quick, but I think the energy in the song is imbued by that. And I think we were able to capture a particular snapshot, but that only came from a lot of pressure and contemplation to get there. People like to say, oh, I did that in 20 minutes, but it's all the things that lead up to that moment that creates an opportunity like that. And at least in that particular instance, I was able to seize on it. My question about this is, obviously, at this point in time, you had multiple successful albums. I've seen you in interviews say that this essentially was the period where the band was falling apart. I've asked you this before. When you write a song, can you distinctly remember exactly the mindset, like the vibe, everything? Were you aware that the band wasn't what it once was going to be? Could you see the writing on the wall? Give me a thought at your time as you're recording a door, you're recording this music, like the world around you. It's a great question, but I think it has more to do with how we think when we're in a breakup situation, right? Breakups can happen over a long, long period of time. And part of the reason it goes on forever, and I've done it, is you're in denial. So you go through this form of cognitive dissonance of like, oh, I got to get away from this thing. In this case, it was the band, or they had to get away from me, or both. And that sort of, that the magnetism of the band was fracturing and breaking apart. So it would take small musical moments to bring us together, but for the most part, we were living in separate worlds and separate mindsets. Then something happens, like everything's cool. You have lunch and you talk about the cat, and whatever, and you think, oh, everything's cool. And then three hours later, you're arguing about the stupidest thing in the world, and you're like, oh my God, I got to get away from you. So it's that form of denial, and you basically gaslight yourself. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say in so many words. So the Adore album was a form of gaslighting on myself. I've been asked many times, if you had it to do over again, what would you change? It's kind of like a standard interview question. And I always say the same thing. I would have finished the Melancholy Tour after Jimmy left the band, and I would have quit the Smashing Pumpkins and gone off on my own. I had everything in the world going for me. I had a massive album. I was 29, 30 years old or whatever I was at that point. It was perfect timing. I was in the exact right spot to go solo like... A Harry Styles went solo or something. You pick your spot and you go, and then you, you live with whatever comes after that, good and bad. Instead, I was connected to an idea of loyalty. I tried to recreate a family dynamic in the band. Huge mistake that I've paid for repeatedly throughout my life. Um, not just with the band, but also with uh, 
wrestling. I mean, I've done it, you know, and even my recent troubles in Pumpkin World, it's it's a form of misconstruing family business and uh, who you can trust and why. I think the hardest thing in life is to compartmentalize. Like, I can trust this person in this way, but not in this way. And you tell yourself you can handle it. Well, when it comes to a love relationship, there is no compartmentalization. The person's in your bed. Or in the case of a band, I mean, we'd been in a van together for 10, 11 years at that point. There was no way to compartmentalize. I mean, you could compartmentalize, like, the costume designs or something like that. But as far as the musical component, there was no space left to erode. I mean, we were in each other's faces. So the positive side is that closeness and that ability to illuminate on the spot because of the relationships and the musical journey. Well, you see the positive end in that in a song like Shame, where it's literally the band playing live on the studio floor. And you get this haunted recording that sort of captures on some level the, you know, the damage that's been done to us on this crazy walk through uh, what was called the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, we've talked about this too before, that lyrics are often wrong when I find them online, so let's find out right here. Some of the lyrics, you're going to walk on home, you're going to walk alone, you're going to see this through, don't let them get to you, shame. You essentially are having, I don't know, is it a conversation amongst yourself? Is the shame the feeling that it's a shame that this is all going to happen no matter how hard you try, that everything will once break down, things will go away, things will end, things will die? Or is it shame that you're feeling in that you didn't appreciate it in the time and now in retrospect, it's a shame that I didn't see it for all it was worth when I had it? I think one of the most haunting things in life, and it does dovetail a lot with our conversation today, is looking and saying, this should be different, but it isn't. This relationship should be different. This band should be different. I should be in a different spot in my life. I remember one time I was talking to this therapist I had and I I got out of a really bad relationship and then I dated somebody for like two months and I almost recreated the exact same dynamic with another person. And I went to the therapist and I was apoplectic, like, I can't believe how stupid I am. He goes, well, at least this time it only lasted two months instead of eight years. (laughs) It's haunting to go, oh my God, I'm staring into the same mirror with a different face, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? So I think the shame here is is a deeper acceptance of you got to get home, you're going to have to go alone, You're going to have to see this through because there's really no other choice. Shame. You know, like, hey, too bad. Sorry if you hear my kids screaming, as usual. They're unbridled souls who are in need of better parenting, apparently. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of family, there you go. It's right there. The good thing about my kids is they don't give AF, and uh, you can hear it right there. Daddy podcasting. It doesn't mean anything to them. So your question is pointed in this particular respect. Is it a shame that life is going to present you with situations and quandaries which you can't control. And as they used to say, them's the brakes, kid. Without question, I know that everybody who can hear the sound of my voice knows exactly what I'm talking about. We look and we say, what happened? How did I get here? Everybody goes through it, but somehow we convince ourselves that we've got to handle different or we can't be gaslit or we can't be manipulated or we can't be betrayed. And that's just the part of life. I could go another step, but I don't think it's that interesting. So anything else you want to talk about, Shane? I want to talk a little bit about your ideas of trying to build the family dynamic around your band or around people that are in wrestling. Do you think the challenge with that is, is because, you know, when you're with a family, there's just something more ingrained. Maybe it's even on a genetic level that, you know, this, what we're doing here is for the group. Whereas where you're going in and you're doing these things that in in all intents and purposes are business, 
you're always going to get somebody who's, I'm always going to be trying to think of myself over the core. Great question. First of all, trying to recreate family that's not family, bad idea. Okay, so I'll start there. Bad idea. Just a bad idea. Does that mean that the family of the band wasn't worth trying for? No, I think it played into the dynamic. It's had a positive and a negative effect on that. At the end of the day, probably a net negative. But if I hadn't done that with those particular people, there may not have been those songs that we're talking about. So hard to say. It's easy to be like, oh yeah, wave it away. For people who grew up in broken families, I don't think it's unusual to try to create a family outside of your own family because you're not getting from them what you need. The difficulty is you're placing familial expectations, i.e. blood expectations, on people who are not blood. I would say at this point, at 55, if you get through life with like five, seven close people that aren't your family, that you feel like family about, you're lucky. And maybe it's maybe the number's under five. It's a tough go. I think it's one of those questions I really struggle for an answer for because my heart says you want to find your tribe. You want to know who your people are in this world. And so there's a longing there. But I also would add to that that a lot of my idea of family, because I had such broken families, three in, ca- in my case, three separate families, two blood and one step. I think my idea of families comes from like chips and happy days. Like it's, it was based on something I saw on television. It wasn't real or Disney. So I'm chasing the Disney version of family. Not that that version's not real, but I'm I'm going through the the 90 minute television version as opposed to the real version, which is like, oh my god, I can't stand you. Get away from me! And then you got to go have Christmas dinner with Uncle Louie or something. That's a different different thing, and it involves genetics. Like you look like me, you walk like me, you scratch your nose the same way as I do, or something like that. And then you're trying to put that expectation on somebody that you met on MySpace. I mean, that's a that's a tough go just on paper. Again, back to self-responsibility. I place those things on myself and where I've tried to create a family in the band, mistake, although the band at this point is its own form of family. The people who've surrounded the band through the years that I tried to include in the greater family of the band, mistake, absolutely mistake. And there were people who were very skilled at manipulating those dynamics to their own advantage. And then the minute they're out the door, suddenly... Uh, no more Christmas cards. Let's put it that way. I remember one of the first things I said to you before I came into the position that I currently do in your life and in your business stuff is we were at a bar at an after show for an NWA anniversary show. And I was just looking at all these people in a room that they were there, this mishmash of people. One dude's looks like a Satanist. Another dude's a rock star. Another person's this, another person's that, another person's a weird psycho in the corner rocking back and forth. It's, it, wrestling's a mishmash of characters. But I remember I looked at you and I said, man, this has got to be weird for you. And you said, what? And I said, just look around this room. Every person here, every, no one here would ever know each other, be in a room together. If it wasn't for the fact that you had a singular vision and said, Hey, I want to create something. And I need all of these people to get on board and help me make this thing a reality. I said, that's a lot of responsibility because essentially you just adopted a room full of misfits to try to build a family together. So it's funny you're talking about this because I distinctly remember feeling that way in that moment with something you created. When you when you talk that way, and I think this is the beautiful way to end because it does sort of tie it all together. When you talk about the crowd, that crowd at that night, or the crowd that I see out in the stands at a sold-out show, or 50 people come to Zuzu's because they want to see me do something funny or strange or cool or just intimate, 
I don't feel at this point in my life personally possessive of that. I will sit here and say, hand on heart, all glory to God. God put me in a position to communicate in a particular way. And where it's worked, and I'm underlining the word worked, you see the spoils of that. But where it hasn't, I have suffered. I have had self-doubt. I've been pushed to the brink of suicide. I've doubted my own thinking, my own everything, every last cell in my body. So invert the formula like, God, why did you put me in this position? Or how did I end up here? So all glory to God's vision on what that's good for. And it'll, I can end with something that the psychic intuitive told me yesterday in my, in my reading. The intuitive said, you judge yourself too often as a failure based on human thinking of what is success and failure. And I won't bore everybody with how I quantify the math on that. But there is much of my feeling in life is I haven't succeeded the way I could have. So in my weird math, that's failing. Take it for what it's worth. I certainly feel like I'm winning more now, but doesn't mean I don't feel over in the aggregate that I failed. So you can do the math on that. The psychic said, you don't know the people that you've touched, inspired, course corrected. You have no ability to judge that. And you certainly as a human being don't have the ability to judge that. Only a higher being or your higher self, to use the parlance of the language of spirit, can actually understand that your success is not success or failure in the material world. You set out on a journey to inspire, and you have done that. And you will never truly understand who you've touched. And let's give the last note here to Lisa. Lisa cannot possibly have understood in her short life the people that she touched and why. I think she and hopefully she heard it wherever she is, would be shocked at the level of connectivity that she created in her life. And I hope from my end that she feels the prayer in that, because I am absolutely humbled by knowing her. It's so hard to put into words, and it gets more complicated because of the public aspect of it. But I can tell you that when you know somebody like that and they go, you go, wow, there goes a lot of energy with that one being. So it's weird because I have no problem talking about Lisa that way, but I have trouble doing my own math for myself. And I think that's what the intuitive was basically trying to posit for me, which is like, you cannot possibly understand what you've created. So let's do the quick math here. I'm sitting here on my podcast, 33 with William Patrick Corgan, where we talk about my songs. And I'm telling you at the end of this long dissertation that I believe the credit goes to someone else. Because they put me here, and I've done good things and not good things with it. But the, the energy, the opportunity does not come of me. You can give me credit for being a Boy Scout and hanging in there when I probably should have wrapped it up and called it quits many times. But the energy around it, the, the connectivity, the, the opportunity of life, what is the spark of life? Ask yourself that question. What animates a human being and what one day snuffs that energy out? Couldn't tell you in a million years. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kyle. I've enjoyed this deep dive into my world. My world. That's where you hit uh, Jeff Jarrett's music. It's my world. We love everybody. Be blessed. Talk to you soon.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.